Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 390th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Sarah Starr, visiting assistant professor of English at Kenyon College. We're going to be talking about the Henry Daniel Project, the first complete edition of the Lieber Uri Chrissiarium. The history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsavital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, which we call Farouk de Naren. And today we'll be talking about the Henry David Project, the first complete edition of the Lieber Uricrisium with Dr. Sarah Starr, visiting assistant professor of English at Kenyon College. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah. Thank you for having me. Um, if you could do it in like 15 to 20 seconds, give us a little bit. I'm just kidding about that. Can you give us a little background about Henry David, who he was, and what his work consisted of? Sure. Henry Daniel was a friar in the 14th century in England, and he also wrote two large medical texts, one of which we're talking about today, the Liber Uricriciarum, which is, in English, the book of urines. So it's a book that talks about the diagnostic science of urine and what that can help people know about their body and diagnose their illnesses. Wow, that's a topic that I'm sure is just top of the charts in so many ways. No, could you please tell our listeners, listeners then, then what was the value back then? Why, for a topic that right now would could seem to be very, very bizarre, why was it so important back then? That's a great question. Um, diagnosing or using urine to diagnose illness is sort of the main diagnostic method. Um, Looking at urine, examining urine, was sort of thought to report on the inner workings of the body, right? It's like evidence of what's going on inside, but it doesn't require any instruments. You can just use the human observation to sort of figure out something that's going on inside. Um, so the treatise is actually encyclopedic in scope because the idea in this period is that urine can tell you everything about everything that's going on inside your, your body. Um, and so it's important because it's the main diagnostic tool that's being used by medical practitioners. Okay, so one of the things that makes this uh, interesting is that this is the first major text in Middle English on the subject. So talk to us a little bit about the issues of translation and that sort of thing? Oh, I love that question. Yes, that is why it's important. Um, so most medicine circulating in England at this time is written in Latin or it's translated from Arabic into Latin because that's kind of the language that is reserved for more intellectual topics. Um, and so Daniel wants to make medicine accessible to the masses by writing it down in English. And it's also important because it's not a direct translation of an existing text. So some medicine started to appear in English at this time, but it wasn't original. It, was, it would be a translation from something that was originally written in Arabic or in Latin, 
now available in English for the first time. Daniel is someone who read a lot of medicine, but he mixed what he had read with his personal experience. And so the text that he's writing is important because it's not only is it in English, but it's also original to him. It's not, um, it's not just condensing ideas that already existed from people like, you know, Hippocrates or Galen or people like that. Okay. Could you give our listeners kind of a time frame when Henry Daniel was around in his life, um, where he, I mean, as a friar, he's obviously tied in with the church. Uh, could mm-hmm. you please give them a greater scope of what his existence was about? Sure, as much as I can. We don't know a lot about him, unfortunately. We only know what he reveals in his own text, which is kind of interesting, but it also is part of the struggle of studying this period, is that we don't have a whole lot of records. But we don't know he's a friar, so as you say, that means he's connected to the church. We don't know exactly where in England he was. We're not sure which convent or monastery he would have been involved with. Um, But he does record, you know, having... Um, lived before becoming a friar in different areas and having gardens in different areas. So we have this sort of sense that he might have traveled around a little bit. Um, And this is in the late 14th century. So he writes in the Liber Uticriciarum that he started the text around 1375. Um, And then in later revisions, he says, you know, oh, the year is now 1378 or the year is now 1382. So we know that he revised it for several years. Um, And there are different versions that exist as a result of those revisions. But that's about the time that he's working. So late 1370s, 1380s in England somewhere, who knows exactly where, as a friar. Dr. Starr, I'm I'm interested. We tend in the modern world to think of medical tasks as this very dry, very descriptive, just focusing on medicine. But... This text considers medical influences that we wouldn't. I'm thinking in particular of astrology. So, you know, that was included in here as well. Talk a little bit about how that plays into the medical diagnostic system of the time. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, So astrology and astronomy, there isn't really a distinction at this point yet, right? Um, Astrology and astronomy appear in a lot of medieval medical texts um, because of this idea of the human body being a microcosm of the universe. And so the universe is often also explained because it can help. It's sort of like a, like a parallel system um, that can also influence the elements, which also influence the body. Um, and so there's this microcosm-macrocosm relationship. And so if you understand how the universe works, You can also understand how the human body works. And if you understand um, aspects of balance, right, so a balance of um, heat, cold, wetness, dryness, all of these central ideas about how to balance different elements and balance different humors, that affects the universe as much as it affects the human body. I'm not sure if that explains it very clearly, but I think the, the best way that I can explain it is that is that microcosm-macrocosm relationship. So it's uh, the human body kind of helps you understand the universe and vice versa. Okay. Let's take a look at the times. Of course, um, 
Europe and uh, Asia and Northern Africa have had been having um, pandemics on and off uh, for centuries, if not millenniums. So when uh, this kind of publication comes along, uh, do you read or see any of the outside um, medical pandemics or situations or conquering uh, impact how um, Henry Daniel uh, came up with his uh, ideas? Hmm. I hadn't thought about it like that before. So the question is, does the Black Plague or whatever... The outside world have an impact, to make it in a simpler term. Yeah. Um, I think it does because, as I was saying before, he doesn't just read medicine. Like, he does read a lot. But he also disagrees with authorities when his observations don't accord with what they had said. And so if he's also explaining his observations and he's also observing people who have been inflicted with some kind of plague, then in that way it would affect what he's talking about. There aren't any direct references to any plagues in his text, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not influencing the ideas because he's also observing people. Okay. All right. Um, Sarah, this is going to be the last question of the segment. Um, And it kind of goes to where John was talking about a a little bit. Um, Because this is a text written in the vernacular, so it could be read by the general public, so to speak, um, it it makes it a text that appeals not to the quote-unquote university-trained physician who would have known his Latin, but more to the the uh, the leech or the local individual who's involved in providing practical medicine uh, to the general population. Can you give me a sense of how big a deal it was for these people to get their hands on a solid medical uh, encyclopedia by the, like this? Oh yeah, that's such that's such a great question. I don't know how to explain how big a deal it is other than to say that it's just such a big deal um, in the way that, that you're phrasing it here, right? That, that it's unprecedented to have access to, um, to an academic style text, right? It's written in the vernacular and he has all these observations that are relatable to um a lay reader, right, not an academic reader, but it's also based in principles that they would not otherwise have access to. And so it kind of bridges that gap between the um, educated university-type physicians and the people who just need to know um, what they might have, just need to know, how, like, you know, what color means what, what urine color means what, right? Um there wouldn't have been anything before that could help them diagnose their own illnesses. And that's a huge, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal just to repeat that it's, um, that it's vernacular, but still academic. So it's this reliable, it's a reliable source. Um, and that he really does mean for it to be helpful. He writes a prologue at the beginning where he says that his goal is to, help people who covet to be experts in the deeming of urine, which he assumes is everybody. He thinks everybody wants to know this. Everybody wants to have this expertise. I have it. 
and I'm going to give it to you. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Sarah Starr, visiting assistant professor of English at Kenyon College, and we're going to be talking about the Daniel Project, the first complete edition of the Liber Yuri Chrysarum, with our history buffs, who are Rick Sweet and Terry, or excuse me, and Ed Broders. Uh, Rick, as a man who has dealt with lots of medicine recently, you get the first question. That's because I just love doctors, you know. Stick and, me with a needle. And you're old, but that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, that's a tragic, uh, tragic life. Sarah, I'm, I, I uh, actually do absolutely nothing about this uh, until Jay proposed this as a topic. And so I did a little research and got uh, really, really buried in urine. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just I'm just curious, you know, where did where did uh Henry start off with? How, you know, what uh, uh how did this body of information come about and uh where he could compile it in in, in this uh treatise? What, what how did this all come about? Yeah, so there is an illustrious tradition of uroscopic science, which I think to us, you know, sounds ridiculous. Um, and it's become so normal for me to say, of course, there, you know, there are so many treatises on urine, but I guess that is weird. <laughs> um, but I yes. am buried in urine all the time, so I forget how weird it is. Um, it goes back really far. And um, I think I mentioned Hippocrates and Galen earlier. Um, there's a lot of medicine in the early Middle Ages, so through the 8th to 11th century, that's really focusing on this kind of diagnosis. Um, and a lot of it is being written in Arabic. And so in the 11th century, in the 10th century, that medicine is being translated into Latin in Central Europe and kind of around uh, Italy and France. And then it's being brought into England, still in Latin. And so by this time, in the 14th century, when Daniel is working, there are already so many treatises that have sort of established the science of uroscopy that he can access. And because he's a friar, he has access to a library, unlike many other people, right? It's before the printing press, so everything is in manuscript form. Most of the... Um, Access to books comes from 
or is available to the clergy because monasteries have libraries. So that's how he's able to access this information. And a lot of friars are also kind of, I'm going to say health advisors. There's been a lot of work on friars as medical practitioners in the Middle Ages. There were some restrictions on what they were and what they were not supposed to do with patients, but a lot of them were practicing medicine as well. So he has this kind of role to play in his society to help people, but he also has access to all of these texts written centuries earlier that established this important science. One, I will say, one of his sources, um, people always find this interesting, that some medical texts were written in verse as, uh, like as poems so that people could remember them better. Hmm. So there are some Latin poems out there about urine that are just meant to help you remember <laughs> remember different details about what a certain color might mean or a certain consistency. Um, and Daniel used that a lot and then kind of elaborated on that information based on his experiences with people. Ed. Oh, I want to hear one of those poems. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Ed, you got a question before. Uh, yeah. do, uh, go ahead. Dr. Sarah, um, as these as this type of treaties went, as these sort of things go, um, where did this uh, where did this um, work uh, rank? Was it like was it the gold standard for a few hundred years, or was it just another in a long line of progressive progressively improving um, medical texts? You mean this text individually? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it would be considered hmm, kind of a mix between both. So there's some evidence, a colleague of mine, Tess Tavermina, who kind of initiated the Henry Daniel Project, has done some research on early modern medical texts and has found references to Henry Daniel in the 15th and 16th centuries. So we know that people were reading him and that his treatise was significant beyond his own time. And that's is certainly important. We also know that he was widely read in his own time based on how many manuscripts survive, um, at least 37, which sounds very small, but it's actually quite a lot. There wouldn't be that many manuscripts of a lot of poems by Chaucer for comparison. So it's spreading pretty widely um, based on what we still have. Uh, so we know that he was widely read. In terms of whether it's the gold star, I don't know. I think that the system of judgment would be so different, right? Like the people Daniel is writing for wouldn't necessarily uh, be looking for, wouldn't necessarily have that kind of system of measurement, right? Or wouldn't necessarily know what tradition he's working in. That would just be the the information that they had. So the Liberator Christiarum, because it's this vernacular accessible text, um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that all of Daniel's readers would have been thinking of that in that way. I think that other physicians who were looking at it would because they would see these references to other physicians, right, um, like Theophilus and Aristotle, and they would say, oh, this is, you know, this is um, academic, this is authoritative. Mm-hmm. But there is a, there's that mix of readership that kind of makes the status a little bit blurry. We know that it was widely read. We don't know if that means it was considered the best. 
we just know that it means that it it did achieve Daniel's goal of being accessible. Jay. So I think our listeners would love to have a sense of of what the, the, the text is saying. And, and I'm particularly interested because I've, I've read a fair number of these. And, and one of the things that comes through loud and clear is that in, in many ways, these sometimes feel more like recipes, like, like cooking recipes, um, as opposed to what we think of as medical texts, where you're being given sort of a set of ingredients. If this is there, you talked about color often, you know, if this color, then try this thing or, or whatever. So can you kind of give us an example so that we have a sense of what it would have looked or sounded like? Sure. Um, so I mentioned color because there are, according to Daniel, 20 different colors that your urine could take on. <laughs> um, and a lot of urine texts often came with a picture of like a color wheel um, so that you could sort of compare your urine to the colors in the wheel. Um, and so the idea is that the color and consistency of urine reflects the extent to which digestion is working properly. So if your urine is like a warm yellow, that's good. It means that digestion is working perfectly fine. If it's more watery and pale, then that means that something is undercooked. So Kind of in the way you were talking about recipes, diagnosis sort of follows that same language too because Daniel's thinking of digestion as a kind of cooking process um, and that your urine can show whether your body is kind of undercooked, perfectly cooked, or overcooked. And if your urine is like a darker color, like a reddish or even like, or even like a greenish or a blackish color, then... Something is something is obviously wrong, right? But but it was explained in terms of heat, um, and so some type of the the cures aren't usually given because it's a diagnostic treatise. But in talking about being overheated, then the you would cure that with some kind of cooling, um, something that cools the body down. Um, and so, in addition to color, there's also consistency, right? Is it cloudy? Is it clear? Is there anything floating around in it? And so the third book, the treatise is divided into three books. And the third one is just describing different, different things that could be floating in your urine and what they might mean. So you might have little hairs floating in your urine. You might have a little bit of sperm floating around in your urine. Uh, you might have some little bran flakes floating around in your urine. And he just kind of describes... Um, what they might look like and what ailments they might indicate and why they indicate that. He's really interested in explaining um, why it is that this observation means particular disease. In all sincerity, does he have any discussion on like kidney stones, which is a horrific condition that is, you know, deals with this? Does he have any any chapters on, okay, if you're not happen to be urinating, there's side effects or consequences too? There's nothing on if you're not urinating as far as I recall, but that's a really interesting question. Kidney stones, yes, kidney stones do appear. There's also a huge tangent on women's health. 
um, just to go back to kidney stones for a second, because there's also um, a condition that's unique to women where they think that they're pregnant, but then after months of thinking they're pregnant, they pass just like a hard lump of nothing, um, which is kind of like a kidney stone, except it's framed within this discussion of how to treat women during pregnancy. So he kind of sneaks in a lot of information on um, how to determine whether or not you're pregnant, how to treat a person who is pregnant, and what to do during childbirth, which is obviously not a normal part of a, of a uroscopy treatise. Um, but he likes to explain everything. And I think that I'll probably come back to this when you ask if it's relevant or irrelevant, because I think this is one of the most important things that he does is provide a way to talk about women's health in a world where the body is typically the male body. Really? Uh, Ed, you got one last question before we ask her what's relevant and not? Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, Dr. Sarah, is this work um, just a compilation of other texts where he sort of distilled a lot of stuff and put it into one one text, or does he add to the knowledge base um, through his own knowledge? And I hesitate to, to use the word, did he experiment, because the scientific method really was not even in its infancy at that time. So... Um, What's the new material that he contributes? Right. That's a good question. So it is a compilation in that he does talk a lot about what other people have said, but it is not only a compilation because he also does add a lot of material that is his own that's based on his own observations. And sometimes he'll find that his sources disagree, and he'll spend some time talking about that. So there's um, these two words, diuretic and styptic, for example. And in the edition that um, we just published, Ruth Harvey talks about this um, because it's something that's fascinated her for a long time, and she's someone else who really initiated this whole project. She's been working on Daniel for many years, and she's the person who first introduced me to Henry Daniel um, as a professor of mine when I was in graduate school. And she talks about the way that Daniel how different medical authorities have different meanings for these words. Some think that one means binding and the other means loosening. Some have it reversed. And so he asks other doctors and apothecaries and everyone he knows, and they all keep giving him different answers. And he has to leave it unsettled because he just says, I can't find a definitive answer to this. Here are all of the possibilities, but I'm not exactly sure what, what these words mean because nobody seems to agree. There are also times where he'll say, oh, there's this test to um, find out, for example, if if you're pregnant with like a a girl or a boy child. And he'll say, oh, Hippocrates has this test, but it's incorrect. (laughs) Like I've seen a woman do this test and it didn't. It didn't produce the results that Hippocrates said that it would produce, so don't put any faith in that test. <laughs> and so it's really funny because it's when he kind of slips in his character a little bit, right? Like it is, it is a record of scientific information, but then also sometimes he's really judgy about about his predecessors, and you know, like, oh, don't put any faith in that. Don't pay attention to that Hippocrates guy. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of cheeky at times too. Okay, in a 
Uh, quick conclusion. Uh, why do you think knowing about the Liber Urchrisium is relevant in today's world? It's such a great topic, such a great question. I've been thinking about it because in some ways right now, you know, nothing feels relevant. Uh, but then I thought, no, I do think that there's a, a special significance for Henry Daniel today because this text is about public health. It's about access to health care. It's about access to medical knowledge. And I think that that topic is as relevant today as it was to Daniel in 14th century England. I think that that's something that people are talking about all the time. And that if we have a sense of the history of our own relationship to healthcare and the ways in which different people have tried to find access to it and tried to figure out how to take care of their own bodies or get some kind of control over their own bodies. I think that that's, you know, I think it's interesting and I think it's important. And as I mentioned earlier, I also think it's important that Daniel sneaks in a tangent on women's health in a world that, uh, you know, there were gynecological treatises, but there weren't, um, it wasn't as widespread, right? Um, It wasn't talked about as much in encyclopedic treatises. Um, and so finding a way to speak for speak for women as well and include women's health as an essential part of what healthcare means is important. Okay. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 390th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Sorts. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sarah Starr, visiting professor of English at Kenyon College. And we have been talking about the Henry David Daniel excuse me, project, the first complete edition of of the Lieber Yuri Chrisarum. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.